0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Change in the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. All right. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to season four of Changing the Climate. Happy 2022. I'm really excited to be kicking this season off with a very special guest, Mr. Jeff Weber. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being the first guest of season four. Hey,
1: thanks, Ethan. I'm excited for this, and uh, congratulations on th- successful seasons, hopefully we can make it a fantastic fourth.
0: I'm sure we will and what better way to get started when with a classic climate scientist. So Jeff, if you could tell me a little bit about who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing, I would really appreciate it.
1: Sure, my name is Jeff Weber and I work at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Um, My first degree in college was in finance. I did a few things with that but my graduate work is in Arctic climate and remote sensing. And so in the 90s I was working for NASA uh, installing automated weather stations on the equilibrium line of the Greenland ice sheet to try to determine the mass balance changing of the ice sheet. Um, those stations and those towers are still in existence today. We're still collecting real-time data.
0: So, what, what happened, man? You went from studying money to studying ice? What, what initiated that?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I found that there's a, a greater purpose in life other than money. And uh, I feel that climate change is probably society's biggest problem that we're currently facing. And so, as my small contribution to uh, the planet and society, I'm trying to do my best to figure out what's going on with this climate and how we can uh, get humanity and society through it.
0: Right on. And how did you end up studying in the Greenland Ice Sheet?
1: Well, uh, here at CU, my scientific advisor, Conrad Steffen, may he rest in peace, he died on the Greenland Ice Sheet uh, two years ago. Wow. Uh, His whole core of science was on the Greenland Ice Sheet. And Greenland, as well as Antarctica, are the big bastions of ice on the planet. And so if we can monitor what's going on on the Greenland ice sheet, it's a harbinger or a bellwether of what else is going on on the planet. And the Arctic is amplifying climate change much more than anywhere else on the planet. So studying Greenland makes a lot of sense when we're looking at climate change. Uh, He was from Switzerland, and he did most of his studying in Europe. And Greenland plays a large factor on European weather, how the cyclones interact with the elevated ice sheet of Greenland determines the track, as well as the intensity of cyclones approaching Europe. So for a long time, the Europeans have been very interested in Greenland and how it affects their reasonable weather, whereas here in the United States, you know, things move from west to east, so by the time it goes off our shores towards Greenland, it's kind of out of our hair. But but planetary-wise, it's a big player, and it's a, a great thing to study uh, the climate change effects in the Arctic.
0: And it's a Danish
1: territory, is that right? You are correct. Yes. Um, nice. It is owned by Denmark, but in the 90s, uh, they gave it back to the Inuit for home rule. They still maintain the territory as possession, but it has home rule for the Inuit who are the native inhabitants.
0: Oh, that's really, really good to know. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about the Greenland ice sheet as this conversation goes on. Let's let's kind of kick off the season giving an explanation of what is weather and what is climate. Like, How does this planetary system that we all live in actually function?
1: Yeah, you know, so, so weather is the stuff we get every day. You know, it's the rain, it's the snow, it's the cold temperatures, the warm temperatures that we get on a daily basis. And that's very different uh, depending upon where you live and, and what season it is. Climate is, is kind of a, a statistical product. It's what we would expect the weather to be based on past weather. And so in the United States, we use a climatological period of 30 years. And so when we look at climatology, currently now from 2020, we look back to 1990. And so we're looking at the weather between 1990 and 2020. That's our climatological average. And that's kind of what we would expect the weather to be. Now we deviate from climatological norms all the time when we either have heat waves or cold weather outbreaks, but the climatological values are what we would expect. It's kind of like the average values for those parameters over the past 30 years. Now, as we go through a climate change environment, that climatology changes. If we were to look at the climatology, for example, from 1940 to 1970, those numbers are drastically different from the climatology from 1990 to 2020. And so that's why we kind of have a moving average. If we were always comparing to the old climatology, we'd always be in a different space in this climate environment where we're warming. And so we keep a a moving average of the climatology norms for what we would expect the weather to do.
0: So one of the most interesting things is that the largest influence or impact on the climate is is what exactly is it is it the sun is it our atmosphere like and as you know we need to to mention that there was this geological epoch that we were in of the most stable climate we could possibly calculate over the last I think is it what 16,000 years it's 12,800 years or is it no 11,600 is the the Holocene right
1: right for the last epoch yes so, um, I'm sorry, I lost you on that one.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I go around in circles. It's a lot of complex. I'm not a science guy. I'm a business guy, and I'm trying to, like, grasp the, the science stuff. So, what, what is, like, the largest thing that, in, in, input that changes the climate?
1: Okay, so, the main driving force for all the forcings on the planet is the sun. All of our energy comes from the sun some people might say yeah there's some geothermal energy from the surface blown. that's that's true but it is so insignificant compared to the energy that we get from the sun we can pretty much say that all of our energy comes from the sun now the sun heats the earth and then the earth heats the atmosphere so the sun kind of goes through the atmosphere heats the earth the earth as a ball warms up and then heats the atmosphere that it is touching and so that's kind of the, the basic process now, as we started pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that acted as a way for the atmosphere itself to absorb some of that solar radiation and re-radiate it back to the surface, as well as re-radiating the energy from the, the Earth's surface back towards the Earth, kind of acting as a blanket. We call that the greenhouse gas effect. Yep. And so the shortwave radiation, which is the, the visibles part of the spectrum, goes through it. But the infrared, the longer wavelengths, the heat cannot escape through that boundary. And so the sun goes in, but the heat can't come out. And that gives us a, a warming process on the planet. And that's what's going on in Venus. They have a runaway greenhouse gas effect, which is making Venus completely inhospitable, temperatures in the thousands of degrees, because the sun's energy can go in, but the heat can't come back out
0: so how does how does these changing the changing levels of heat influence like the daily weather that we'll see or heat waves or increases in precipitation all that stuff
1: yeah well the the impact of increased energy in the system is parabolic i mean it it impacts absolutely every aspect of the planet Uh, from from the sensible weather that we get for example as the atmosphere warms its capacity to hold water vapor increases. And so as we have a warmer planet, we can move more water vapor around, which would then lead us to having heavier precipitation events, uh, prompting prompting more flooding. It also changes the distribution of where the rain will fall um, by forcing onto the planet, either in the oceans or on the land surfaces, that changes the way the jet stream moves around the planet, which is how we distribute that water vapor. Um, And so, it impacts absolutely every aspect. It impacts when the trees bloom, when, when agricultural crops are able to be, to be grown or not grown. And so it is, it is truly the dominating factor of our planet, is the amount of energy that comes in, how we deal with it. As a species, of course, we've been around for hundreds of thousands of years and we've adapted what was currently the, the norm for the planet. And so our, our species and the other flora and fauna on this planet have adapted to what's been kind of going on here in the past uh, hundred thousand years. And that's what we've adapted to. And as we go through this rapid climate change, species are not going to be able to adapt as quickly. And so there might be uh, a great die-off or extinction event taking place as we go into a warmer planet.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that that's going on right now. So so what did you learn um, on your time studying the, the Greenland ice sheet and how it impacts our climate system? Because you said there's these two major ice sheets. It's the Greenland ice sheet, and then you said, is it the Antarctic as well? Correct, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so those are our big reservoirs of ice. And they're important for a variety of reasons. Um, As a a store of liquid water that's fresh water, it's the biggest storage for fresh water on the planet on these ice sheets. As that water melts, as we go into a warming world, that has dramatic impacts on the oceans because the oceans are saline. And they need to have saline water uh, get super cooled. As as water becomes saltier, it has to go to a lower temperature to freeze. And so the saltier water can get down to like maybe 26, 25 degrees Fahrenheit before it freezes. And so that becomes what we call our super cooled bottom water that forms between Iceland and Greenland uh, in the Greenland Sea. And as that really dense, super cold water descends, it drives the thermal circulation around the entire planet. What uh, is that? Well, the thermohaline circulation uh, is temperature and salt, and it's the general circulation of the oceans around the entire planet. Its main purpose is to take heat away from the equator and move it towards the poles. The oceans, just like anything else, is always trying to reach an equilibrium, and so we have more energy and more heating at the equators and less at the poles is trying to put that into an equilibrium state. And so the, the purpose of the thermohaline circulation is to, to mix the oceans and to transfer this heat where it is overwhelming, such as at the Equators, to the areas where that energy is less towards the poles. So, for example, the Gulf Stream, which we are familiar with here in the United States, is a very warm current that is born out of the Gulf of Mexico, runs up the eastern seaboard of the United States, goes across the Northern Atlantic, and warms Europe. The European continent, Ireland, they can grow palm trees. And yet they're at, you know, 10 degrees more north latitude than we are here in Colorado. And that's because of the moderating effects of these warm ocean currents. Now, if we shut down that thermohaline circulation, that's when things get very, very tricky. Uh, The northern climates start to cool down because of these warm currents that are no longer moderating their their weather, as well as nutrients, and it's it's a really big deal. So suppressing the thermohaline circulation would be a very bad thing. And in 1968, we had what we call the Great Salinity Anomaly, when the Greenland Ice Sheet melted off a dramatic amount of ice, and that turned into a freshwater lens over the Greenland Sea. And that virtually shut down the thermohaline circulation for that year. So the impact is almost immediate. Without that generation of deep ocean bottom water, you can shut down the thermohaline circulation, which has impacts on ocean life as well as human life as we're trying to moderate the, uh, the weather at these nor- northern climates.
0: Right. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about the ocean as if it's kind of like, this living thing, or it's this force that's trying to reach equilibrium. Is it? Is it ever stay in equilibrium, or is it always kind of swaying in and out based on like stuff inputs that are coming in and out?
1: Yeah, it, it never is static because it's always getting either additional forcings near the equator, or or cold from the pole, or in the winter nights uh, when there is no insulation into the into the polar regions. And so it's always trying to reach that 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 equilibrium state. And that's why we have to have the the circulation going on to try to move nutrients and and warm and cold waters uh, throughout the globe, throughout all the oceans, um, trying to get to that equilibrium state. The oceans are are the answer to climate change. Um, The thermal inertia in oceans is far greater than in in the atmosphere. And so what happens in the oceans is really what's going to dictate how our planet goes through this climate changing environment that that we're looking at. Um, the, the oceans take up the carbon dioxide, they're a sink for the carbon dioxide that we are, as humanity are putting out, as well as the fact, here, here's a little known tidbit that many people don't think about. They think about the Amazon rainforest as the Earth's lungs. We've heard that time and time again. Oh, we got to take care of the Amazon because that's where our oxygen comes from. The latest study shows that about 50 to 85% of our breathable oxygen comes from phytoplankton. These small little organisms in the ocean that are doing photosynthesis uh, and releasing oxygen back into the atmosphere. And so the oceans really are where our existence lies. You know, if we kill the oceans, we die. Uh, our oxygen goes away. Our ability to transfer heat from the equator to the poles goes away. And so it's, it's all about the oceans.
0: It is all about the oceans, and here's where, like, the ominous – I try to keep the show as positive as possible. Here's, like, the ominous tone starts coming in, like, dun-dun-dun. Like, we are – like, we're, we're ravaging the ocean, whether it be overfishing it, putting lots of pollutants into it, um, putting tons of plastic pollution in there. It's absolutely awful. Um, but before we go too deep into the ocean, let's let's also talk about what's going on that is, I guess, the with, with the largest – impact on the ocean I guess those are all horrible impacts but the greenland ice sheet is currently melting and we have these um this data that's predicting that it's going to melt significantly in the next however many years so that so we we talked about two things so far i think if i'm correct is this thermo thermo what circulation
1: thermo haline haline is a fancy word for salt
0: thermohaline circulation which is most impacted by the polar vortex am i following correctly the polar vortex is the like a huge body of of water that's not um flowing through this circulation it's regulating it in some way or
1: the polar vortex is an atmospheric phenomena and it's a oh. persistent low pressure that persists over the north pole in the winter and over the south pole in the south pole winter or, or summer and so that's an atmospheric phenomena whereas the thermohaline circulation is an oceanic phenomena. Got it. Now they are connected in the fact that we live in an interconnected planet, and everything kind of impacts everything else. Sure. Um, but the the polar vortex is is going to be more of a a weather thing because it's a uh, seasonal and it is uh, over the poles, and we have these cold weather outbreaks due to the polar vortex straying out of the pole. Whereas the thermohaline circulation is solely an oceanic phenomena and it's being driven about by differences in temperature and salinity in the ocean, which drives the general circulation of the entire ocean.
0: Okay, and let's talk about the general trend that we're seeing based on the melting Greenland ice sheet.
1: Yeah, that that is my area of focus. And I would like to say that at the onset, when we were modeling the melt of the Greenland ice sheet, we had kind of underestimated the amount of melt that would come from the bottom of the ice. We have the, the top of the ice very well instrumented, very well uh, um, monitored over decades. And so we have the the atmospheric forcings and how that affects the surface of the ice sheet fairly well understood. What we didn't understand as well was what happens when these warmer ocean waters attack these ice sheets from below, underneath. And we had underestimated that by almost an order of magnitude. And so as the the warmer ocean kind of attacks the ice sheet from below, not only is it, Melting it, but it's also allowing those warm waters to advance inland underneath the ice, and that's the the amplifying factor that we really didn't take into effect. We didn't think that the wow. warm ocean water would be able to kind of scour along uh, the base of of the the bedrock and get underneath the glacier. And not only is it helping it melt it, but then it also lubricates that channel, which increases the surge of the glacier, meaning more ice is being able to empty out into the oceans. And so, this basal melt was dramatically undervalued at the onset of our uh, contributions to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And now I think we have a much better understanding of that process, which is not good news because it means that we'll we would lose the ice uh, more rapidly.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's obviously more difficult to measure as well cuz it's hard to like get under the sea and measure things and isn't that that classic um example of that picture of the iceberg where you, you you think of an iceberg we're thinking of the the ice on top of the water but really the most of it is all the way under there and that sounds like a huge um un- underestimation underestimation that could be pretty problematic. When did, when did he start figuring this this out that we, he didn't understand this properly?
1: Well, it's, it's slightly it's slightly different than the iceberg because the Greenland Ice Sheet is all on land. Um, it's oh. supported by, by that island and so it's not 10% above the water, 90% below the water. Um, Interesting. It's, it's all above ground and so we don't have that issue. We, we at least see it um, and we know what we're dealing with. It, it was really hard. What we were able to start doing was injecting some dyes into what we call these mulans, which are these melt holes in the middle of the Greenland Ice Sheet and by injecting this dye, we could actually see the, the travel paths and find out where this water comes back out. And so we were able to kind of follow that back in from the coast and try to find the trajectories of where these mulans were draining to. And that kind of started, uh, we started being able to do this after 2000. So between 2000 and 2010, we started having these, these discoveries showing us how these mulans were draining the water to the coast and how that was undercutting the glaciers at the base and allowing these warmer ocean waters to come in and and continue to eat away at the ice in in that manner. And so it's been a relatively new discovery, but we're able to incorporate that into our models of late. And so we're getting what we think is a, a more factual representation of the melting of the Greenland ice sheet.
0: Well, that's good. And it's really important for people to care about the health of the ocean. I mean, all of life originated there. But what would someone who lives in, you know, for example, Boulder, Colorado, hundreds of miles away from the Greenland Ice Sheet, from the coast, why should they care about the melting Greenland Ice Sheet? How is its impact on this flow of ocean water going to affect their lives here in the mountains, for example?
1: Right. Well, in Boulder, we like to ski. Uh, We like to ski and, and we like to have a lot of snow to ski on. Well, all of the snow comes from the oceans, number one. You know, all, all of our moisture source are, are, are from the oceans. So our, our snowfall comes from the oceans. So that's important. Secondly, as the thermalhaline circulation slows down or shuts down completely, it will alter the climate for the entire planet. It will make, um, it, it, we, we don't know exactly because we've never seen it happen. We can model it and so we have expectations on what might happen, but there are, are multiple scenarios. Um, for example, when we run the modeling for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we run a hundred members of the same model, and we do different perturbations, so we have a hundred different solutions. Um, we oftentimes will run a thousand different solutions on these types of environmental issues, and so it's probability. It's it's there, there's no way we can run one model and say this is the truth. But what mm-hmm. we can do is we can run a thousand models. And out of those thousand models, mm-hmm. maybe four hundred of them will indicate, yeah, well we're going to have a drier Southwest United States based on this change in circulation. Now, one of the main focuses of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for us has been looking at the desert southwest of the United States. And model run after model run seems to indicate that the desert southwest will warm and dry. And so if that does play out, then we here in Colorado would be having water shortages for drinking, uh skiing would probably just be an afterthought at that point because we would be just trying to survive Mm -hmm. um the Hadley cell is forecast to the Hadley cell which is the uh air that originates on the equator and then descends at around 20 or 30 north and south and creates our deserts around the planet um that is forecast to expand as, as, as that Hadley cell expands the desertification of the Sonoran desert in Arizona could creep up into Utah which is already somewhat desertified and into Colorado and so we could be looking at a completely different climate here in Colorado just based on a change in oceanic circulation.
0: That's really interesting. Well, let's, let's get into talking about um, the east side of the U.S. and um, extreme weather events. How will this change? Is it thermohaline circulation?
1: It is thermohaline.
0: <laughs> I remember from, from Earth science class. It's, it's coming back to me. Um, how does this affect like, extreme weather events or like hurricanes and tornadoes and stuff like that?
1: Sure. What, uh, what are those
0: at all? Like, why, why do they even happen to begin with?
1: Well, the hurricane's main function is similar to the thermal hailing circulation, that it is trying to take excess heat from the equators and take it to the poles. That is the function of the hurricane, to distribute the heat where there's too much and take it to where there's not enough or where there's not as much. And so that's the the hurricane's function on this planet. Now, as we go into a warmer planet, there's a variety of beliefs on what's going to happen with hurricanes. that they become more intense is almost a given. People will, will, will buy into that almost unilaterally that ever believes that the hurricanes will become more intense. Whether or not they become more frequent is a conversation that has got uh, two sides that are very well positioned. Um, what drives the big difference, uh, what, what drives the power of the jet stream and of these things is the difference in temperature between the poles and the equator. So as the poles continue to warm more rapidly than the equator's, that temperature difference between the poles and the equators kind of diminishes and, and, and gets less. And so that weakens the jet stream. Uh, and so as we have a warmer environment with a weaker jet stream and the warmer environment can carry more water and the storms are moving more slowly, that really looks at at flooding scenarios. And so I think what we're really going to be looking at um, really ways to try to mitigate flooding. Flooding will be at incredibly new levels. Uh, current city drainage systems will become overwhelmed because they were built with an old idea on what superstorms are and as we have a warmer planet and a slower jet stream these storms will dump significantly more water and um so it's going to be an issue yes
0: so so this um i'm thinking about what you're saying earlier how the heat increases that means there's more pres- uh, more water in the air right so is Correct. that going to lead to more flooding because that water in the air has to come down at some point. And then as I understand it, flooding is essentially the most dangerous uh, aspect of natural disasters, right? It usually does the most damage out of all of them. It's usually not the winds. It's the water that can destroy everything.
1: Yeah, for hurricanes, definitely uh, the most damage comes from the water, not the winds. Uh, Heat waves still tend to kill more people than anything else. Uh, Heat waves are the most uh, killing factor of natural phenomena. Uh, But when you do look at hurricanes, it's it's definitely the water, uh, not the wind. Um, And so, as we go into this warming planet, sea levels rise, which means storm surge impacts areas that it never impacted before. As the planet gets warmer, the oceans also get warmer, which is the fuel for hurricanes. So the hurricanes will become stronger. Um, your, Your sea levels are higher up, you have a stronger hurricane, so that gives the impact onshore, even at a greater distance. So you might have impacts maybe a half a mile or a mile on shore in certain areas. Well, as we have the shore, as we have the sea level rise and the storms get stronger, that impact will be felt maybe five or ten miles on shore, depending upon the topography of that shoreline. And so those types of natural disasters, hurricanes, um, will become a far greater issue to coastal communities because they will be less protected as the seas continue to rise and as the storms become more intense. Now, for tornadoes, tornadoes are a completely different animal, and they're born kind of by the the boundary of cold air mixing with dry air mixing with warm tropical air. And so we still have those ingredients. Some people believe that as we warm and warm and warm, there might not be enough cold, dry air to trigger tornadoes. (laughs) I I don't think that's the case because the Rocky Mountains are a tremendous source of cooler, drier air as it comes off the 14,000-foot peaks, interacting with that warm moisture in the... Um, Gulf states and the Gulf of Mexico, that's what drives the tornadoes. And so I don't see a huge change in tornado frequency or intensity because of climate change. But hurricanes, I definitely see a change in their intensity and maybe more frequent, but maybe not. They might just stay at the same numbers, but the intensity will definitely be greater.
0: So based on this modeling and what we're expecting to happen with the changing climate, are there any areas geographical areas in the on the planet that are particularly safe or less prone to be destroyed by this, this new world we're living in. I know um, in, in, this, in this country, we think of Florida getting ravaged by hurricanes, and then I think, if I'm not mistaken, Myanmar is at huge risk for flooding due to sea rise. Are there any particularly safe spots where people will be going to? We have this concern of, of migrants. Just wanted to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's things that I discuss quite often. Where is the best place to go on a climate-changing planet? Um, since water is a huge issue and or or lack thereof i would go to a place where i would expect a lot of water Hmm. i um and and i also wouldn't go to an area where sea level is going to be an issue like you know vanuatu you know we're going to probably lose that entire nation in 50 years where is that Uh, vanuatu is an island nation in the south pacific to the northwest of australia Um, and they're already losing portions of their island Uh, they're already those are the first climate refugees Uh, about 500 people have left the island to move to new zealand uh, because their island is shrinking and, and will go away. Um, if I were to, if you know, the the the, the wheat belt, the grain belts are all going to move north, um, which is great for Canada and Russia. Let's face it. Um, and and Western Canada has got a lot of moisture. You know, British Columbia gets a ton of water. If I had to move somewhere in, in, in a climate change environment, I'd be moving to Western Canada. <laughs> That's where I'd go.
0: <laughs> right. Any thoughts on how humanity is going to deal with this? And what what are what are do we have any idea what the timescales are for when? Is it going to be like, are there going to be tipping points where things change rapidly? Or is it going to be like an accelerating kind of change, like a compounding effect? What do the models currently tell us?
1: Well, I'm going to get off the models for a second. I'm going to go to data. And I'm going to bring back some ice core stuff. When we drilled the ice cores on the Greenland Ice Sheet, we can go back about 260,000 years uh, in the ice cores. And the ice cores give us a really good representation of what the atmosphere was like at that time. We can see what types of pollens were in the air, so we can kind of determine what plants were available. we get oxygen isotopes. There's O16 and O18. And they are varying by what's going on in the temperatures of the oceans. And that's how we can determine kind of what's going on in the oceans as well by looking at this difference of oxygen isotopes in these ice cores. But one of the most interesting things that we found in these ice cores is that climate change, as we've seen many times in the past, is not a linear function. It doesn't just gradually change over time. What we're seeing in these ice cores is that climate kind of gets into an equilibrium state. You have additional fortunes that take place in one way or another, and then you have about a two to three decade period of chaos, and then you go back into another equilibrium state. I hypothesize that the bizarre weather that we've been seeing over the past 10, 20 years is part of that chaotic state between climate equilibriums. Uh, We have seen a dramatic change in reasonable, sensible weather over the past couple of decades. We've set all sorts of records for uh, drought, for wildfire, um, cold temperatures, warm temperatures. All of these extremes are coming into play. And so I say that we are in this point in time on this planet where we have so much additional forcing, greenhouse gases and so on, that we're, we're in a changing planet. And we're going to find a new equilibrium sometime in the next 10 or 15 years. And, and then we'll be in a new equilibrium state. And so what that new equilibrium state will be is uh, is what we're trying to model. And that's when we bring in the modeling efforts. And they're, you know, I'm an observationalist. I, I like to go out and I like to collect data. I like to analyze data. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't collect data in the future though. So that's when you have to fall back and use models for, the, for, the, for that task. And they're right. great for that purpose. But um, it's still a model and it's it's not data, it's model output and it's only as good as the model is created and it's only as good as the knowledge that we currently had when we made that model and so it's good to get an idea of well if, if we change this what are the downstream impacts in certain locations and that's a really useful example of the models but to regard them as truth or to say well this model indicates that by 2050 we'll have an ice-free September in the Arctic and by 2100 it'll be completely ice-free all year long uh, I, I don't throw as much weight into that I, I Maybe those are trends, but let's not throw some absoluteness into those model outputs.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's not throw absoluteness into anything. That's that's the way I like to live. <laughs> but um, are, you talk about this chaotic period where there's rapid change. Isn't that – so the way I, I understand it, I'm obviously very minimal understanding of how the entire um, climate system works or just the biosphere itself. But um, isn't it usually like there's a big – intense input that would change the entire system? For example, like an extra, extraterrestrial impact, like what happened 65 million years ago that, put, that took, took out the dinosaurs. Isn't it usually something or like a giant volcanic interrupt, uh, eruption that creates this? And then in this example, we're pumping a bunch of gas into the atmosphere, and that's what's creating this chaotic state. Am I kind of in the, in the right wheelhouse here?
1: You're exactly right, Ethan. There's something that perturbs the current static state of the climate, whether right. it's... Any of those examples that you mentioned would do such a thing, and, and in our case, it is the amplification of greenhouse gases into our atmosphere.
0: Right, right, right. Very interesting. Um, so, how is? I mean, I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about the, the like the vulnerability of where I'm, I'm from, New Jersey. So, I mean, I, I lived I lived through sand. I mean, I lived through Sandy. It was it, the power was out for a while. Um, they're particularly vulnerable because of sea level rise on the East Coast, right? And that will increase the hurricane intensity. Um, anything they can do to prepare for, for that kind of thing? Or is that is that right?
1: It, it, it is right because the Northeast United States is more susceptible to sea level rise than just about anywhere else on the planet. Something that and another, another thing to bring on is that sea level isn't sea level. You know, Everybody thinks, well, sea level is just this flat value and it's the same across the planet. Well, it's not. Um, the Atlantic Gyre, which is the oceanic circulation in the Atlantic Basin, the North Atlantic Basin, goes clockwise. And due to the nature of its circulation and the bathymetry, the the, the topography of the ocean floor, New York, New Jersey, Boston will see a two to three times greater sea level rise than Florida. Oh, wow. So the same coast, it's the same ocean, but due to the way that the, the ocean's waters circulate in that North Atlantic gyre, that puts the forcings more onto the northeast US coast. And so New York, Philadelphia, Boston are all really poised to have a dramatic sea level rise as this takes place. And these cities that are old, they were bought, built right along the seaboard, and so for that reason that, that they're old, they're brought right to the coastline, and they're most susceptible to any anywhere else on the planet. That the, the amplification of sea level rise is the worst on the northeast United States. They're going to experience it more dramatically and, and sooner than anybody else. And so it's a real concern. I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, you can only build a seawall so high, you know, and for so long. Um, I I can envision a time 100 years down the road where, you know, a lot of New York has moved inland. Um, I I just don't know how else to stop it. You know, water has got too much mass. You just can't build a wall and expect to hold the ocean back.
0: Fair point. Um, So there there is this idea of um, like tipping points, and I think we were talking about um, a very relevant one being the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. Once enough of it has melted off, it it messes up that circulation which then creates more melting and it creates this positive feedback loop which means that we can't go back to status quo we're entering a, a new a new climate era um, how would you recommend people like a mentally and emotionally deal with these realities because a lot of i think some people just kind of will ignore will just ignore until it's like right right up in their face you know
1: well, yeah, and, and Ethan, I'd like to commend you on being proactive on this and doing the things that you're doing about climate change because it is very easy to dismiss it because it's not immediate. And um, the thing is, though, is, is that it's very real. You know, people ask, you know, I hear people saying, well, do you believe in climate change? Well, I don't believe in it. I know it. It's not a belief system. It's science, and it's, there are facts around what we base our beliefs, what we understand here. And so um, I think communication is, is very important, and you're, you're helping with that. Allowing people to understand what the really true dynamic issues are of climate change. Another thing is, is that you know it can't be all doom and gloom. You know we're not all going to die because of the changing climate, but but things will need to change and we'll need to adapt. It's like you know I moved to Arizona uh, back in the, the 1980s and I went from Colorado to Arizona. Well, you know it's a lot hotter in Arizona. I had to adapt to that new environment and I was able to do so. I was uncomfortable for a while, but I was able to adapt to a warmer planet um, by moving. And so as we we go on. It's not going to be like, you know, tomorrow it's going to be 100 degrees warmer. The impacts will will be gradual. We we need to keep it in our mind. We need to think about how are we going to change our our habits of of burning fossil fuels? How are we going to change our agricultural habits? How are we going to manage our water resources better? You know, we have a, a fairly long fuse before we get into a really bad state. And so by being able to communicate and being able to have a strategy in place to help us adjust to a change in climate, that's really the best thing that we can do because we, we can't stop it. Even if we were to stop pumping out greenhouse gases today and brought the output to zero, they live on the planet for another you know twenty, fifty, a hundred years, depending upon what type of a greenhouse gas it is. And so we've already baked in a significant amount of the forcing already. And so how do we change our our practices on a day-to-day basis to, to adapt to this is what we need to be thinking about. You know, how how do we cool our homes without using energy how do we drive our cars without using fossil fuels Um, how do we better manage our water resources so that we don't waste it on flood farming cotton in arizona you know these are the things that we need to be asking ourselves and finding solutions for
0: yeah and let's let's kind of let's kind of turn it to a, a positive note as we start getting towards the end of the podcast. One thing that's cool is we're talking about um, needing to adapt to a changing climate, a changing environment, a, a new world order, whatever if you will. And humans have have shown to be the most adaptable species that's ever existed on this planet. Is that not true?
1: We're incredibly resilient.
0: Yeah. So um, beyond. Just adapting to our environment, is there a way based on what we understand about these inputs and the way the system works um, that we can foster a livable climate for an increasing population of people? like is there is there a way for us to positively impact the system and and cre- and ch- ch- you know influence it in a way that it creates more life on earth? That's always what I'm trying to figure out how to do.
1: Yeah, certainly, Ethan. You know, and that's the, that's the right attitude to have. Um, we're a bright species. We've got incredible technological achievements to date, I mean, we're putting people on the moon. We're flying computers and robots to Mars. Um, you would think that we'd be able to to handle this this problem. The thing is, is that we we need to do this as a planet. You know, the United States can act, and you know, France can act, and Algeria can act, whatever. It needs to be holistically approach. You know, we we need to address this as a planet. It's a planetary problem. And, you know, I understand the the needs for uh, developing nations such as China and India to be able to go through their coal phase like the United States did as well. But, you know, China is still bringing on a a, a large coal-burning power plant on the average of about one a week. They have thousands of them in their country. They're still burning coal. and, And China does not have the benefit of having anthracite or hard coal. They have bituminous soft coal, which is even a heavier polluter. And so, um we need to act globally and, and and you know people say well so china's burning coal you know how does that impact things well the soot from that coal burning lands on the greenland ice sheet which makes it darker which means it's it absorbs more away. radiation which makes it melt faster i mean it's it's all connected and so um the, the the teleconnections and the implications of one person doing one thing on one side of the planet affects the whole planet. And so we have to have that mindset that we're trying to advance this as a as a global solution, not as what can the United States do it, or how can we do this better than China or better than Russia. Or, you know, we need to have that we need to get rid of that mindset and start thinking about ourselves as global citizens and what can we do to make this planet a better place to live. And I know that we can do that. I know that we have the 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 desire, the ambition, the motivation and the technology to make us have a I mean we can have infinite energy infinite renewable energy and we can have our own little watersheds and pure water out of the air for everybody i mean there are ways to go with us we just need the right leadership and the right strategies to get us there
0: that was amazing man and i'm gonna i'm gonna do a little um i'm gonna pull all the ideas that i've i've learned from, i've learned from this podcast together and see and let me know if you think i'm kind of in in the right area so fossil fuels is made is from decomposed plants And what I've learned is that plants eat decomposed plants. That's kind of like their main source of food. So... I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put it together. Um, So, so we've, we've like emitted all this extra plant food into the atmosphere. So actually we've given, there's this robust source of food for all these plants to eat. And what we found is that when there's more plants, there's more animals that can live with the plants. So it's, you know, the formula is still there for us to have like even more life. Am I right? Even with the increased amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it's, it's the planet is like really, really green now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you know, the carbon dioxide, which is what we exhale and is the, the powering greenhouse gas currently that's, that's warming our planet, is what plants intake and what they thrive on. They breathe in carbon dioxide and, and put out oxygen. And so you're right, the, the, the increase in carbon dioxide is, is good for the, the plant life on the planet. They're saying, hey, yeah, great, more stuff for us to, to suck down and, and process. And so we need to find a way to still keep the plants going but not heat the planet up so much that it makes it inhospitable for other species.
0: Oh, right, all right. right. I see. Yeah, I'm just trying trying to spin the the optimist the optimist view as much as I can, because um, yeah, you
1: know, and, and if we and if we get more vegetation in our cities, um, that that stuffs the urban heat island effect, and that makes living a lot more enjoyable, you know, the, most of these heat waves that kill people are, are in large urban centers. You don't, you don't see these heat waves in the middle of Iowa killing people. No, but they still have them. It's the, it's the concrete that keeps it hot at night and it re-radiates it at night and never lets it cool down. If you were able to tree the cities, not only does that bring in the carbon dioxide, of the carbon dioxide, but it also shades the area, and so it keeps the heat down in, in the urban cores. And so and th- there's a lot of strategies. For example, Phoenix is now making all of their roads out of concrete instead of asphalt, so it radiates... The heat back out instead of absorbing it like an asphalt if white instead of black road, yeah white versus black you know and so it reflects it back into space instead of absorbing it and transferring it to heat at the surface if you could cover the roadways with solar panels you shade them and you get energy i mean there are a lot of solutions out there again we just need to, to have the right impetus and the motivations to implement them and, and and go forward there's a there's a lot of people in the fossil fuel industry that don't want us to go down this road and so there are competing monetary interests uh, sadly um, but you're right, you know, for, for plants, I mean, we feed them fertilizer, which is made out of oil, right? You know, that, that's what fertilizer is made out of, is, is oil. And so, yeah, they, they, they thrive on decomposed plants. And so if we could get more vegetation strategically placed to shade areas that need the shade, um, of course, water is a limiting factor. But there, there are many solutions that we have in place. For example, another example is that the Russians wanted to launch tens of thousands of mirrors into space to reflect the sunlight. It's like, well, you know, I like, I like the way the Russians think big, they always have these big ideas, uh, but the implications of putting tens of thousands of objects into uh, low Earth orbit has a lot of other implications as well, so I don't think we'll be going down that path. Uh, or putting iron filings in the Southern Oceans to get more phytoplankton to bloom to take in more carbon dioxide and release more oxygen. There, There's a lot of ideas floating around out there, and I suspect that as they get peer-reviewed and, and discussed among scientists, we'll come up with some good ones and we'll uh, march forward to victory on this planet.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think there's this kind of sentiment swirling out there in the ethos that we're destroying this one chance we have for life, but it's such a robust system and there's all these different inputs out there and no matter what we put in, it still seems like this formula for life is here and it's just so amazing. But uh, yeah, Jeff, Great great having you on the show today, man. I really appreciated hearing your perspective. Um, what advice? I mean, you've kind of sprinkled it into the last five minutes, but like, what advice do you have for uh, young people in particular who are passionate about science and want to foster this more beautiful world?
1: Hey, you know, if, if you're young and you're interested by this topic, um, become an Arctic climatologist or a climatologist or an atmospheric scientist. You know, We need people in the sciences who have the passion to save this planet. And I encourage you to go down that path. It's been a great career for myself. I really enjoy it. And uh, it's rewarding in the fact that you're helping other uh, planetary citizens get on with their lives in a a productive way. So um, it's it's not a death sentence. We will work our way through this. We need the brightest and smartest minds to be dedicating themselves to this topic. And so get on board with us. Come work at UCAR NCAR and join the Atmospheric Scientist team and we'll, we'll solve this problem.
0: Join the Atmospheric Scientist team and together we will all solve this problem. Absolutely. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on, man. Really appreciate it.
1: Ethan, thank you so much. I appreciate your work that you're doing. Keep up the good work and uh, more power to you, my friend.
0: You got it, man. All right, everybody. Welcome back. See you you for the rest of the year.